Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple, to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. We at Blockchain Recorded are not registered investment advisors and do not deal with financial or trading token elements, nor offer any licensed financial services. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, while the opinions of all parties involved are their own. I'm your host, Nina Tserar, and now let's talk blockchain. Before I introduce our guest today, I'd like to remind our listeners to follow us on Twitter, where we pre-stream each episode on Twitter Spaces the day before publishing on all major podcast platforms. For the platform list, visit our website, blockchainrecorded.com. In addition, Blockchain Recorded Podcast is a proud media partner of the upcoming Blockdown Portugal and Istanbul Blockchain Week events. For further event information, speakers, and ticket details with available discounts, check blockdownconf.com and istanbulblockchainweek.com. And now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest today, JP Barrick. Uh, JP is the founder and CEO of Mining Store, a U.S. mining company which designs, builds, and operates large-scale cryptocurrency mining data centers. Uh, JP is quite the OG in the uh, mining space, and since starting a robotics camp at only 15 years old, he's created three businesses and has led the development of 10 cryptocurrency mining sites. But I will let JP take it from here and tell us about his story. Uh, JP, welcome to Blockchain Recorded. I'm excited to be here. Thanks again for having me. <laughs> and yes, I you know, have been helping build mining facilities since a young a young lad, 16 years old, when I found about Bitcoin in 2013. And uh, it, you know, before that was running robotics camps. So I always had my hands in the entrepreneur basket and uh, dropped out of school to, to do Bitcoin full time. That's, that's incredible. You know, I've listened to quite a few podcasts that you've done prior to to ours and I'm still I know that you've talked about this probably you know to no end but I'm still fascinated by the fact that you well you started you got into Bitcoin at age 13 and then you started mining in high school yeah so freshman year of high school I found out about Bitcoin I was like this is the future right. separating money from state and from there it just was a rabbit hole you go down and want to learn so much more but you you know I'm just thinking back you know I'm thinking back to when I was in high school and I was a freshman I mean obviously those were different times I'm, I'm a lot older than you are <laughs> but um, we had you know we were dealing more with the starts of the internet but it just the fact that you started down that path you must have had I mean your your parents must have been by your side and starting with mining how did that come about and then founding mining store can you maybe talk to us about that a little bit yeah I'd love to so for me I was reading TechCrunch saw Bitcoin tried to buy it couldn't buy it price started going up. I was like, oh, I really want to buy this. <laughs> so I then went to my mom. I was like, hey, there's this website called Mt. Gox. Like, I'm not 18. Uh, can I use your passport and buy some Bitcoin? And so, you know, she helped me make an account or I made an account for her effectively and then uh, got the, got some Bitcoin. And then from there, you know, I was like, what is this? What am I working on? And started researching, started trading different altcoins on Bitcoin talk in school. My friends and I would just uh, contribute to posts and try to get Bitcoin. And one of my friends actually earned one whole Bitcoin by just doing tasks like art tasks and logos and stuff on Bitcoin talk. And so it was really just being young and innovative and supporting the community. And then from there, I realized that mining was a potential for using my robotics knowledge and knowledge of computers and wanting to, to build with physical things. So I, I naturally moved into mining. And when I, when I did that, I did two things. One is I put down a deposit for a Butterfly Labs uh, mining machine. And if you know any story about them, they were a mining manufacturer in the US and they said two weeks, two weeks, two weeks and Bitmain beat them to the punch on the ASIC and they never really shipped. Eventually I got mine, but it never made any money and it cost me maybe five, 10 Bitcoins back then. So it was a bad decision to buy it. But anyway, you know, then the GPUs started coming and working on those and it had a little milk crate. And in that milk crate, you put in six graphics cards mining, not Bitcoin, because at that time it was transitioning to ASIC, but Litecoin, Dogecoin, you know, any of these other cryptocurrencies 
overseas and then selling them for, for BTC. And so that was my journey. Um, and as I grew in that journey, my parents, you know, they were supportive, but they were a little bit like, what is this? I, you know, my family didn't really know what Bitcoin was. It was young and it was new. Mm-hmm. But over time, as the media came out, as the price rose, you know, they, they wanted to learn more as I was able to learn more and explain them how Bitcoin is so unique. And I would start off back then by explaining Bitcoin solving this big problem, which was the Byzantine generals problem. And how do we get consensus? And now I don't really talk about that as much because I realize it's so abstract for people. But um, that's kind of how the story started. And then when it comes to mining store, um, we ended up getting me and a a co-founder an investment from my grandparents, myself and my uncle and my parents. And we put about $100,000 into GPUs. Mm -hmm. We called up Newegg.com, which was a a GPU, I guess, reseller. And we said, hey, we want to buy 300 of them. And to them, they were like, you know, this is the third call this week we've had where someone's asking to buy hundreds of these. Usually everyone buys one. What is happening? What is changing in the industry? And it's like, well, there's this new thing called Ethereum and Litecoin that's going to like really change how mining works or change what these GPUs are used for. And so we started building them out in our my parents' basement and then ended up transporting them to a local, I would say, old factory where they made clothes in Graham, North Carolina, and started running uh, Ethereum miners there. And at some at the beginning, we were mining close to 500 Ethereum a day. Obviously, having to sell that Ethereum at the end of the month to pay our power bill, but it was an amazing learning opportunity. And I would say the best story I have from that adventure was, you know, all day we're building the facility or building the machines. We take them to the site. We arrive there maybe 6 p.m. We start plugging everything in. We're working till 2 or 3 in the morning. They had 24-7 shift there for staff. So then we turn on the power, but we forgot one thing. We forgot to flip the power supplies from 120 volts to 240 volts. So we turn it on and everything starts exploding. Oh like boom, boom, boom. And we're like, no, what do we do wrong? And so that night, you know, I'm sleeping on the couch in this facility and like in the room and my friend and I are sleeping there and I wake up in the morning, I have a rugby tournament in Charlotte. So then I go to my play my rugby game. I'm so bad. I'm dropping the ball. I couldn't, I was like sleep deprived. <laughs> oh it was a mess. But the next day I had to drive to every Best Buy and buy every power supply they had. Like, what do you guys have? Just like, give it to me, give it to me. And then drive them back and then we do the power supplies that blew up. So it's, it's always an adventure when you're mining and it's a 24-7 business, which is makes it very hard to run and operate effectively. That's that's insane. I mean, just thinking. But so this all happened. You were in high school. Yeah. So I would finish school. Still, you were still in high school when you did the rugby game and everything. This is like high school. Years. Exactly. So I'd finish school and then drive to the mine about an hour away. Oh my gosh. And sometimes I would sleep there, wake up and go to school again. Well, um, but you've, you know, 2023, I mean, you're dedicated and you're you're like a mining OG now and you have all these experiences. I mean, explosions are not. And uh, like you mentioned, I'm getting broken equipment and all this. I mean, these are the growing pains, right? Exactly. You, 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 you literally grew up with the industry. Like you literally grew up. Oh, no. I mean, I grew up, you know, alongside some of the best Bitcoiners and people in the space, which was amazing. You know, when I was in 2013, 2014 timeframe, there was an event called Cryptolina in North Carolina. That's when um, Vitalik was one of the first times he spoke about the Ethereum launch. And then also, you know, there was KYC AML classes. So me as a, a young high schooler was sitting in these classes learning about, you know, compliance and AML because I wanted to learn as much as I could. So I was one of those people who just took as much information as I could, digested it, and then tried to apply apply it, uh, you know, through mining, through running a business and, um, you know, all of those things in the Bitcoin space. That's, that's, that's just, that's amazing. It's pretty crazy, but it's, uh, it's a story to have. I mean, uh, no one can take that away from you. It, it is very I mean, crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you're a long time mining and essentially a Web3 expert, okay, it's fast forward to 2023. There's been all kinds of bumps in the road. Maybe if you could shed some light on the current state of the, of the industry, um, we're seeing all kinds of crackdowns, obviously. And, um, well, especially you're, as I understand, you're based in the U.S. Your data facilities are based in the U.S. US. So the US regulatory framework has much more effect on you physically there. How do you see the crypto industry now and how it relates to mining? Obviously, the halvening is coming up, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll let you take the ball and run with it. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, so I would say that I think there's been this long um, battle or discussion about what is a security. And even when I was joining in maybe not 2013, 2014, but by the time 2015 came around, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was to create Bitcoin mining and make it accessible to everyone. But you very quickly learn that that's a, you know, to do anything with securitization of an asset, you only can sell to accredited investors. And so I think there's been this overall discussion for a, a long, long time on what is a security and what is not. And we're finally getting some clarity on what that looks like. So as a Bitcoin miner, we're regulated in a few different ways, but mainly the the energy industry, because that's where we are running effectively computers and they're consuming this energy. And so we've seen that in the US, we have maybe five or six energy markets, and then we have thousands of energy utilities that will sell you energy. And because of how the funding works, where the energy companies, um, they can get loans from the government, they all have non-discrimination clauses in their in their on their websites and in their I guess their 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 rules their laws of how they operate and so we've worked on they can't discriminate if a Bitcoin miner comes to them but they can say things like oh no we don't have power there when they do or oh no you know we don't want to give you a good rate because we're not willing to work with you because we we don't understand your flexibility and there's too much risk so there has been those types of discrimination and even on the county level where it's like oh no you can't you can't build a Bitcoin mine here because we don't want you to as a county it doesn't fit in our mm. our zoning requirements but you know the industry is evolving and growing and there's plenty of places to build out in the United States. So it hasn't been all bad, but it's definitely an uphill battle. It's not like, hey, I'm a data center because everyone is with Bitcoin, um, especially in these rural areas, they're very concerned about what is Bitcoin? You know, it's used for criminals. I don't know, I don't understand it. Right. And that's always a, um, an educational opportunity, but it's very hard to sometimes get people to see that this isn't just going away in one or two years and that it's actually going to be there for a while and make an impact to the community. So do you see that? I mean, have different actors in your, what, what would I call it, like formula of uh, whatever, whatever you call it, like you have energy providers, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, do they still have that mentality where it's skeptical and data mining or Bitcoin mining is for, I don't know, bad people? This, the skepticism really comes from this initial, and I can bring back the conversation to a time where my dad and I, we flew out to an area called Grant County, Washington. Now, Grant County, Washington has some of the biggest data centers in the world, and it's very low energy. It's all hydropower, one cent, two cent power, so very, very cheap. So what happened- Okay, hydro, hydro power. Yeah. Sorry, hyd hydro. So okay. what happened was in 2017, as that bull market was running up, everyone ran into there and said, I want to put a 100 megawatt facility, a 50 megawatt facility, you know, 17, 20 applicants. Mm -hmm. And so we flew out there and the day we flew out there, they closed the queue. They said, we're putting a memorandum on Bitcoin mining, no more applications. And then they sat in the queue for years. They didn't do anything with them wow. because they didn't know how to, how to adjust to all of these groups coming in and asking for all their energy. You know, they, they only have effectively in a, in a, in one area, finite supply of energy resources. And they didn't know if Bitcoin was going to be around. They weren't the normal financial backers like Facebook and Microsoft and Google that have big, big checkbooks and can come in and, you know, play more of the, the game of how to court and, and uh, get what they want. And so these guys were mainly, some of them were Chinese, some of them were US. And so what happens is they get overwhelmed because everyone wants to Bitcoin mine when the price is high, but very few people want to Bitcoin mine when the price is low. And so you have people making these representations of, we want 100 megawatts. Well, 100 megawatts is, you know, tens of thousands of homes, hundreds of thousands of homes of power. So these small utilities, they're like, we don't even know where to start. It kind of freaks them out. So we've taken the approach of go in and start small, build a relationship, build a five megawatt, build a 10 megawatt, and then ask for, hey, how do we get to 100 megawatts together type of approach? Well, this is great to set the stage for my for my next question, just in terms of how Bitcoin mining or just world crypto mining works in general. Like, how is the industry set up? How does it work? Who deals with whom? Okay, you're, you just talked about hydropower. Obviously, there's different kinds of um, energy, and we'll definitely get to all that because we, we, we've got to cover, you know, anything from electricity prices going up to solar, wind, and nuclear and all that stuff. I'll definitely ask, pick your brain about that. But just to set the stage for my audience is, how does it work? Sure. Just in general. And how does the model work? And also, just just quickly, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, the the model behind mining is the, the watts to terahashes equation. Am, am I on the right You're right track? Exactly I mean, on not. the right track. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let you I'll let you uh, 
delve into that. Sure. So if you, the, the, the graph looks like if you were to, to model this out, we have the input, which is energy. So that's the fundamental building block of mm-hmm. why proof of work cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have value. They have this input that is a unit of work that we all can agree on, which is a kilowatt hour. So one kilowatt is a measurement of energy. So we take that kilowatt, it goes into a device. Now that device, I've mentioned a few different terms, GPU, ASIC, FPGA, over the years, those devices have become uh, more equipped or become specialized in just doing one task. So GPUs, where I started, they can do everything. They can do AI, they can play video games, they could mine Ethereum. But as the industry got better, the chips became more specific. So GPU stands for Graphical Processing Unit, where an ASIC stands for Application Specific Integrated Circuit. So that means they only can do one thing. And that one thing that a Bitcoin chip can do is something called the SHA-256 algorithm, which is a hashing function on how we mine Bitcoin. And effectively, that's what we get a terahash out of, which is what you mentioned, the watts of the terahashes. So Mm -hmm. a terahash is a unit of measurement for the speed. We're doing trillions of hashes a second. So one machine, when I started, did maybe five uh, giga hashes, which is, um, or five mega hashes, somewhere in that range. Now we've gone almost 10x. So giga hash to mega hash, I believe is a 10x. And then from mega hash to terahash is another 10x. So almost a thousand X. And these new machines do 141 terahashes. When I started, it was five giga hashes. So they become way more efficient, which means the network can grow very quickly and rapidly without having to have all these, let's say, inefficient devices that weren't, that aren't able to be run or profitable anymore. And so you have your input cost, your energy, your resources, and then the Bitcoin miners or any type of computer, you know, it doesn't uh, have a pollutant that comes out of it. It doesn't have a liquid that comes out of it. The only thing that comes out of it is heat. So the energy comes in, it goes and mm-hmm. I say, does these math problems. I've got a lot of heat on that, but I think it's the easiest way, simplest way to say to the, to the layman, it's like doing hash functions, which are effectively math problems, generating heat. And in return, it's sending something called a share. A share is a unit of work where the Bitcoin mining pool says, hey, we're gonna make sure that you're still running. We're gonna make sure that you're still mining Bitcoin. We're gonna send you this share, compute on the share, do the work, and then return it back to us. And that proves that you're online. Now, what is a Bitcoin mining pool? Well, it's a collection of Bitcoin miners who all come together in a, a pool sense, like we're all jumping in the same water pool. And if we win, we all get paid out. So it's like joining together mm-hmm. because Bitcoin mining is simply a lottery. And we are submitting as many shares as we can in order to capture a new Bitcoin block, which happens every 10 minutes. Now, if it's more than 10 minutes, then the Bitcoin network um, speeds up and becomes harder, which is what we call the difficulty, which is how high those shares have to be. And so, for example, if a share is a number, it says, okay, I'm only accepting new shares that are above a million. And then let's say if it's over 10 minutes, the, and the speed and it's it's going it's sorry if it's under 10 minutes and the speed is going faster then you ha- it says okay now it's a million mm-hmm. one hundred thousand now it's a million two hundred thousand but if it's slower if it's 10 minutes plus 50 seconds in a two-week period then it says okay we're going to now make it easier for everyone so it's always recalculating based on how many machines are on the network and these machines are running 24 7 and they only turn off when the input cost the energy becomes too high to be profitable and that's calculated by how much a terahash produces in Bitcoin and then what's the US dollar or what's the value of that Bitcoin that's being produced. So I'll back up and let you ask any clarifying questions on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was excellent. You definitely touched on on several key points. Yeah, I, I guess I will also go a little more back and ask you because I still imagine Okay, now I have the data center picture where, you know, all these uh, it's major power and terahashes going on and, and you're saying the heat. I mean, I still imagine, you know, Bitcoin miners just enthusiastically, like you said, you were in a garage or running mining rigs in a basement. But the practices, I'm sure, or have they, I mean, or this is a question, how have they changed from when you started? Obviously, okay, you mentioned the, the, the giga hashes to the terahashes upscale, but how has the current state of mining practices cha- uh, different uh, or has evolved from when you started? 
I mean, there is all kinds of different challenges, right? I mean, we haven't even touched upon the energy prices and, and the price fluctuations and what all the arbitraging and everything. But my question is, I guess, what kind of shape or form do Bitcoin miners also currently occupy the market? Great question. So you have your what we call home miners, which are going to have between one and five machines. So those are the basement people. Basement people. Exactly. They're the people running in their basement. It's still a thing. It's mm-hmm. still a thing. It's the the reason why it isn't uh, something that grows past that five level machine is because you have to install new electric service to get over that because each one of these is about the same power as a microwave so it's or a washer machine. So it's really a lot of energy I see. In, in, a, in a small little box. And it makes a lot of heat and noise. The noise is what does it. People. You know, every, people love the idea of mining at home. Then they turn this thing on it's like whirling like a wind and they're usually their wife will say hey man i know you like this but no way this noise is way too much (laughs) so so then from there you have another medium-sized groups of miners which i would say are people who went and leased an area they went into an office park they leased an area and they're using existing buildings to uh plug in let's say between five and a hundred machines And then you move to the next scale, which is the five megawatt, 10 megawatt facilities, which are at substations, which is now where kind of we have specialized in at substations, which is where the power is from one voltage to another gets dropped down. And we build out containerized or modularized facilities at those substations. And that's going to be between, let's say, 900 to 2000 servers. So anywhere between two, three megawatts to to seven, 10 megawatts. And then we can abstract that again, which is dedicated substations. So where they build the substation themselves, where they find these large industrial parks and they're going and they're plugging in anywhere between 2,500 servers and 100,000 servers. So an example is like Riot in Texas, where they built, they found an old Alcoa plant that was a bit dear. And then next to the Alcoa plant, they ended up building out their own site. And if you look at pictures, it's just like, you know, miles, not miles, but thousands of square feet of data centers and they're massive buildings you know they're 15 20 feet tall and they're stacked servers to servers and they have over 89,000 servers running in that facility you know with that you have a full-time staff you have management you have monitoring rooms and so that's when the operation becomes so industrialized so large mm-hmm. that you are going to get some economic economics of scale but the guy who's also little running one to five can still participate still be competitive as the guy who's running a hundred thousand machines, which is very unique in Bitcoin mining because most industrial processes, the way to you know get real returns is to scale up very quickly and the little guy can't compete. Right, right. So you have 10 of these data centers, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I've consulted on, on 10 of them. Right now we have, oh, you've, okay. yeah, right now we have three operational and two in development. I see. And this is all US and is this Iowa? All in, all in Iowa. Yep. Yeah, right now. And I've built them in North Carolina, California, you know, all these different areas. But for us, we build and we also sell them. So when the price is higher and there's people wanting to buy facilities, we'll say, hey, we'll sell them. Or we consult on a project and we go in, we build out the data center, we design it for them. And then we hand it to them and then we say, hey, here's the keys. If you want us to support you ongoing, we can do that. If not, you can run it with your own staff. I see. How do you choose a new location for a mining facility? What are the the factors that, I mean, I'm assuming that the factors in a location selection process range from, do they they include the energy pricing? That's usually the first um, thing, actually. And tax? Right. I mean, that's probably the... for us, the yeah, we're looking line. for tax advantages, tax subsidies. Um, Iowa has no data center property tax, and you get rebates on your sales tax for energy for data center usage because Facebook has a data center there. And if you're trying to imagine the scale of this of the internet, the scale of these data centers, Facebook has one that's about a thousand acres or four million square feet. So imagine just driving and driving and driving and seeing a massive data center, just like huge. Those are the scale of data centers that are in Iowa and in this area because of some of these taxes. So first you start there, which is energy price and taxes. Mm -hmm. And then once you have a good energy contract, you're then going to look at things like weather. Um, You're going to look at things like the labor, local labor and the talent, the internet access and how much, how expensive it is to bring internet to the site. um, Or if you can use alternative internet. And those are the main core components that come to finding a site. And then obviously you want flat land, you know, you want land that's not going to flood. You want land that's zoned properly. So all of that takes a lot of time to 
go through, and it takes us about two to three months to go through that process. Now, for small sites, for big sites, you need to file something called a load study, mm-hmm. which is a study on the grid to see if there's available energy in that area. And that can take up to six months to see if the energy is available before you build it, you know, because five megawatts is much different than 50. And so the grid's like, whoa, 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 we need to study this before you plug it in to make sure it's not going to harm anything, which can take up to six months uh, to do. So with all the Bitcoin and energy volatility going on, how do you budget for a mining operation? I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, I have these sort of alarm bells going on because energy and electricity prices where where I'm located in Europe are just rising like crazy. And one has to obviously be super savvy in price arbitrage, etc. How do you budget for that? So it's a great question. And there's a few ways that we're working that you work on budgeting energy. So There's two different types of contracts you can really get in the energy market. One is a fixed contract, which is maybe what you have and most consumers have, Mm -hmm. which has a flat rate for the energy. Mm -hmm. But they also have something called the time of use charge, which is like when everyone's using the energy in the hot summer day, energy is very expensive. And so we don't actually use that very hot summer day energy. We turn off always our facility because we can't afford the energy. So contracts, depending on where we are and depending on what electric grid we're in, are going to be different. But what we, the best contract that we like to have and we like to work on is an energy contract that's based on the market. So what we do is every day we say we're going to use this amount of energy for this hour, every hour, every day, and we're going to bid in the market. Then the market itself clears that energy price every day from everyone generating energy. So if I'm a wind farm, a solar farm, a hydro farm, a natural gas, a coal plant, we all bid our costs in. And then the market says, okay, for every hour, here's the clearing price of the energy. So at this hour, there is this much energy bid in. It's going to cost $20 uh, per megawatt hour, which is two cents a kilowatt hour. And so the people that have energy that are being subsidized, like wind and solar, and the people that are not using fuel, so fuel, non-fuel based source, or what we call renewable energy, those guys can bid in lower than the people that have fuel costs. So what happens is we see that during the hot summer days, when most Bitcoin miners are turning off, that's when you're turning on the coal plants. That's when you're turning on natural gas plants because you have to, you know, people need the power. They don't, they can't not have their air conditioning running and the grid needs that energy. But in the middle of the night, sometimes we're actually getting paid for energy, not during the summer, not usually during the winter, but during the peak, the, during the shoulder months is what they're called. So like March, April, May and um, September, October, mm-hmm. the energy prices can go negative because the federal government in the United States, they subsidize the cost of wind. And so the wind people, they all want to get picked up. So they're saying, hey, I'm not going to get picked up at $5. But if I say negative $5, I'm still going to get picked up. And the federal government's still going to pay me $25. So now I made $20. And then we get paid $5 for using the energy. And we get paid you know, from the Bitcoin network, maybe $50, $60 for using the energy, you know, for selling that Bitcoin that we extracted in terms of dollar per megawatt hour. And the other way we get paid is by saying, because we're reserving a set amount of energy every day, they can use the market operator can call us and say, hey, we need you to turn off. It's an emergency. And we can say, okay, we'll turn off, Mm. but we want paid. And so we have these agreements where we're something called operating reserves. So think about it like a a fast acting battery where we can turn off faster than a battery. And then instead of them having to turn on a natural gas or coal plant to make energy to meet the demand, we turn off our facility and that gives five megawatts back to the grid, which then they can use for other consumers. And so then when the consumer's paying, let's say, $100 $100 per megawatt hour, we're not getting anything from the Bitcoin mine, but we are going to get from the difference from what we're willing to pay and what they sold the energy to someone else for, because we had the rights to that energy. So energy is all about the right to buy and what you have to put up to buy that energy and then actually executing on it and buying it if no one else wants it. Wow, I see. Wow, that's... Uh... It's complicated, but it's definitely worth learning more about. (laughs) Absolutely. No, I mean, this has been on my bucket list (laughs) to understand. It's complex, but it's actually really important, obviously, because energy and you want to get into renewables and all that. I mean, it's 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 pretty important to understand. So I I can see how how it sucks you in. <laughs> yeah, and everything uses electricity, you know. Every everything, everything is based on energy. Everything. The trains, right. you know, the the electric car charging your Tesla. And so that's what people, the consumers are getting more involved because now they have access to have a battery. And when do I charge my battery? When do I discharge my battery for my car? And 
it, what's happening is well, I hope there will be a deregulation of the energy markets. You know, there was all this regulation because we need to provide energy to all these low rural communities and there wasn't people getting energy mm-hmm. and getting stable energy to them increased their standards of living dramatically. But now that we've successfully done that, we have to open the markets up so that everyone can participate in the economic value and not just be shafted, you know, when the natural gas prices rise and it's thousands of thousands of dollars like we saw in Europe last summer right. because that really can negatively impact not only, you know, individuals but the cost of everything that they buy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we're just the little people following around, following the whole thing on. So you've talked about hydro, you've talked, you've alluded to solar and wind, and you know, probably what I'm going to ask you next. So what kind of energy are you using? So we're using the grid, which is a mix of energy at all times, all times mix of energy. But as I mentioned, you know, when when the price of energy goes higher, that's going to be fuel based costs. And that's when we're turning off Mm -hmm. versus when the price of energy is low, and no one's using it because it's negative, that's going to be non-fuel based energy sources such as wind and solar. And that's when we're actually, you know, always running 24 seven. But no one can tell you without, you know, blowing some smoke that they're using all wind or all solar because it, it's, 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 you don't know which electron is where because it's just like a big mattress no, and it all gets charged and it floats around and then, you know, some come out and you don't know where they came from because they don't have little labels that said, hey, I'm a wind farm electron or hey, I'm a solar electron. So that's why the game of energy is about attribution of like, okay, I can offset my energy usage by buying different tax credits or buying different recs and retiring those. And companies like Starbucks, or if you go skiing, you'll say, it'll say like 100% green energy. You know, what they're doing is they're saying every day, we're going to buy these renewable energy credits and we're going to retire them to show people that uh, we are acting you know, as an environmental steward. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how that industry works and how people can make those claims. It's not that they're actually only using wind energy. Right. Well, and obviously wind, solar, these are not, I mean, the energy is not constant. So it's also like the you have the intermittent factor. And there's even something farther to look in there, which is, yes, it's intermittent, but it also doesn't go as far. So the energy, when you have an intermittent source, just like water, and you just lift it up and lift it down the gate, it's going to go a little bit. But if you open the floodgate, it's going to go very, very far. And so energy produced by natural gas and coal or any type of turbines, like a hydro turbine, is going to be pushed really far on the electric lines. Mm -hmm. Whereas solar and wind energy, it's only going to be spurts of it. So it doesn't transport as far, which means that some of it or a lot of it can get evaporated on on the lines just by heat, dissipation. Like most of the energy we generate is dissipated on heat and just losses. Okay. So all that solar, all that wind, if it's not utilized or if it doesn't go as far, so it basically, you lose it. You lose it. It needs some mass to be pushing it. So it still needs a turbine, nuclear, natural gas to be pushing that energy across the, the grid unless it's just too slow to, and it just kind of dissipates. So you need a mix of both. And that's the, the challenges of an electric grid. You can't just have one type of source because of the intermittency. You do need some real mass behind it to push the electrons on the grid you know, to where they need to go. I see. I see. Wow, this is just fascinating. Okay, so... Next question, which I'm sure this is probably the most popular question that you get, environmental concerns, <laughs> right? The way we understand, you know, the general narrative is that Bitcoin mining is not environmentally friendly, et cetera, et cetera. It's a central topic and a main critique. Let's explore this further. The concern camp obviously lobbies against it, and we hear about it in the mainstream media. Well, the unconcerned or probably people who understand how how the power or the energy, the the power grid energy works um, is plugging along. I read your article about Bitcoin mining being environmentally friendly and you wrote it, I think it's about two years ago that you wrote one one of these articles. And if I can quote it, you say, Bitcoin has a carbon footprint less than half the size of the cruise ship industry. So this was uh, like later in 2021. Unlocks stranded and renewable energy resources globally, empowers millions worldwide and is more green than almost every other sector can you talk to that and you like i said you wrote you published this article about two years ago how does it hold to today so bitcoin's energy usage probably is now more than the cruise ship industry but i like to use comparisons because it helps people understand like how big is this absolutely energy usage and that's helped you know over the years of 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 tiktok and instagram and those things those people love those comparisons but (laughs) you know 
when it comes to the energy usage, there's really there, there's there's a few different camps, obviously, but I think it's important to break down that I'm coming from a belief that energy usage and energy creation is an inherent building block of the society and is how we as a society, as a, in a, a community can grow. And we see that everywhere around us. When we increase the energy use, energy efficiency and production in a country, it increases the lifespan of individuals in that country. When we increase the energy production in a country, it, incre- it decreases the more ba- mortality rate of young children, of, of, of children. So these are direct correlations from every country you can see plotted out. So the data is there, but what we don't like is there's this belief that energy usage is somehow bad. Well, you know, you're sitting in a building that was a bunch of energy was created to make that. The solar panels were made by coal or natural gas power plants in China, you know, before they produced solar energy. So everything was created from, from energy and even ourselves, our own systems in our body. And so there's this narrative that energy inherently, you know, using too much of it can be bad. But what I would say is that because electricity, it's not this thing you can box up. And say, oh, I'm going to use this for later. I'm going to store it. Mm -hmm. No, it's this thing that you need to be using every day, 24-7, generating and using. And because it has those fundamental principles, Mm -hmm. it's not something that is just going to disappear and we're going to run out of it. But what we can do is we can build grid resiliency, which means we want to increase the amount of loads that are demand response loads. Because when you don't want to have to shut off energy to a hospital, you don't want to have to shut off energy to your HVAC units to water desalination plants. But if you don't have a stable grid, like some countries that don't, they do have to shut off. They do have brownouts. And they have brownouts because they have a mismatch in consumption and generation. And as a grid operator, your goal 24 seven is to match those. Now, if I'm an industrial process, like let's say aluminum smelting, Mm -hmm. or if I make John Deere tractors in the United States and I need the steel, I can't just stop that practice when a natural gas plant turns on because the energy prices are much higher. I have a steel in the process. I can't just turn down the furnaces. Where a data center, same thing. Facebook just can't say, oh no, everyone, no one's <laughs> using Instagram now because you know the energy is right. used by natural gas now. It doesn't work like that. And so Bitcoin miners are one of the only industries that at scale can say, actually, we don't want that natural gas energy. We don't want that coal energy. Now for us, we're not necessarily saying it because it's not environmentally friendly. We're saying it because it's not cost it's not friendly to us in the cost. It's not cost sensitive and we're cost sensitive buyers. And so we then turn off, but that's the less energy being used at the peak hours. So what you're trying to do when you operate a grid and as we move to transitioning to a renewable energy grid, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build more flexible demand and flexible generation generation that we can't count on every day 24 7 but we can count on it when it's windy and when it's sunny and so the more solar and wind we can build that means the less coal and natural gas we need we're still going to always need a little bit of that base load it might not be coal might not be natural gas but then you have these two people that can do this dance they can when the wind's on you know we're turning on but if the wind suddenly dies we're turning off and that dance is very very powerful now of course it doesn't fit the narrative of of you know people saying energy usage and bitcoin's using all this energy but Bitcoin's only using energy that no one else wants, no one else needs, because mm. Bitcoin can't use expensive energy. And if, if it's expensive, that means the market wants it, which means that it's really needed for the people versus if it's cheap and it's being subsidized by the government, then, hey, you know, it's going to a waste either in heat or it's it's not ending up at its ending consumer. So that's how Bitcoin miners are different and how I think we can play a role in building these amazing sustainable grids for the world. And you see countries are adopting it rapidly because of these unique features and because they can also amortize assets faster. And so that means like if they have built an energy asset, they're able to then say, okay, because we're using more electrons versus what the community was using as it was growing, we can now pay that debt faster, which means developing nations that are building, let's say a a local, um, a small hydro dam, they build the hydro dam for a community that's going to be growing in 20 years. Mm -hmm. Then they put some Bitcoin mining there and they take it down as the community grows, but then they can get the money back from the dam faster and build another dam for their community. And so these changes of how we can amortize assets because we can increase the energy usage on them is tremendous when it comes to financing energy assets for rural areas for people that didn't weren't able to have access to stable energy before. Wow, that's pretty. You make a very compelling case for well, I like the fact that you painted the whole net positive the net positive argument, right? So basically at the beginning you talk about how it's 
the net positive of using the energy and Bitcoin, it's going to be in general, everything's going to be more positive than if you were to not do that. You, that's very, very compelling. When you when you talk about this, like, have you do you speak with regulators or, or have you do you speak with um, with people who who do talk about the general narrative? And yeah, I mean, I would imagine that you have these discussions all the time or no. Yeah, I mean, we're speaking with I speak with lawyers about this. I speak with the local utilities. I'm not necessarily getting into the trade industries yet. But like on a higher level, like not not as much as I should with the government. It's something that I want to get into more because I think I do bring a unique perspective to it. Absolutely. But it's um, it's some of those things where it's like I, for me, I'd rather spend more time creating like social content because it can get a farther reach right. versus trying to go and meet with people. But I do support, you know, Satoshi Action Fund and other groups out there that are actively advocating for the right to mine Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And I am a pretty vocal advocate for it. And so, you know, I think there's, there's, um, like, for example, in Iowa, I hear from some of the utility guys where it's like, oh, JP's here for his, you know, to put a mine here. Like, we know who this is already. And because it's, <laughs> I come up at these conferences now, like as a Bitcoin guy. And mm -hmm. um, so that's, that is happening. And there is that conversation taking place, but I haven't brought it to the regulators yet and explained them why this is so important and advocated in that way. Well, it's okay. One, one step at a time. I mean, I think, Exactly. spreading it and, and just like what what we're doing right now i mean and also just i think podcasting is a extremely powerful tool with all, just having an a voice on alternative media and the more you speak about it and I'm, i'm sure it's tiring for you but the more you speak about it in different um settings the better so more power to you on that let me let me backtrack a little bit so can a bitcoin mining facility with all of the all of these computational resources and like what you've alluded to can it also be utilized for something else in parallel like not just because you're saying it's heat right can you use it with for something else so you can use the heat byproduct for obviously a lot of things like mm -hmm. people are growing tulips uh heating houses drying corn uh so there's these other industrial processes that need heat but you can't do anything else with the compute the computing Because SHA-256, it's an ASIC. It can only do that. And so sure. there is no other use for that computer. But you have a lot of people using the heat as a byproduct to, uh, you know, to better another industrial process. Yeah, right. I mean, well, the obvious thing is, like, if people use it at home, they heat their homes <laughs> with the heat that's going on. But exactly. that was sort of a, yeah, that was sort of a, a, an old kind of uh, wives tale, but was true. But I, I was just thinking on like a grander scale, like all this heat has to be used for something just to make it more, to make it more efficient. And we've looked at, you know, growing microgreens and, and flipping those. And, and it's really just... You know, as a business, you want to operate in your core fundamentals. So until someone who's a very good, let's say, microgreen grower starts targeting Bitcoin mines and says, I'm going to do all the work, come to you and, and do it for you. It's very hard to transition mm -hmm. due to the, you know, the nature of, I would say, financing and, and that Bitcoin miners don't have access to. You know, we don't have access to the capital markets and it's gotten better compared to other uh, larger industrial players that want to go get financing because a bank you know, has looked at Bitcoin in the past like, oh, this is scary. It's gone. We don't want to touch it. Versus if you were like, hey, I'm a farmer, I need a loan. Well, the bank's like, sure, we understand how to grow pigs. You know, we understand the business of, of that. So we'll, we'll, we'll write you a loan for a few million dollars to build your pig farm. That doesn't happen, you know, for Bitcoin miners uh, due to the nature of Bitcoin and the lack of education on what the process is. And then the volatility or assumed volatility of, of Bitcoin mining. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So another energy idea well this is one of that's been popping up in in the headlines more and more and also with el salvador and i'm sure you've talked about it as well volcano powered bitcoin mining <laughs> so geothermal energy for i mean is geothermal energy for mining a reality for from where you you experience it like in the u.s i do believe that uh, geothermal power has is kind of untapped there hasn't been as much capital invested in it compared to natural gas and you know it's a it's a what we call a, a grounding or uh, the power that's going to be generating all the time because 
in a, in that example, you're just putting water in the ground. Mm-hmm. It's turning into steam, and you're spinning a turbine. Like most power, you just spin turbines. Like we haven't got a better way to do it after all these years. Even nuclear is the same way. So with with geothermal, the problem and the expenses has been two folds. We've looked at a lot of it, even like in in sub-Saharan Africa, doing geothermal in even in El Salvador in the United States. But the problem is is digging in the ground. It costs a lot of money to dig mm-hmm. really far down. But I think I think there will be, and we're already seeing some advanced in laser technology that can dig very quickly or like, you know, eat the ground away with just a laser. And that would allow you to drill these holes for geothermal very quickly or let, you know, lower the cost rapidly to deploy that asset. And then at that stage, it's an opportunity for Bitcoin miners to use. And it's great because then they can put their geothermal mine in, they can connect to the grid, sell grid power when the grid is expensive, and then mine Bitcoin when it's not. So I do think that's a huge future. And people like El Salvador are you know, pushing towards building in state mines or industrial sized mines with a state. And they're not the only state involved now. I think there's been one close to China that was involved for a few years now. The, the Saudis are now getting into mining at scale. Right. So there are these these nation states see the value of Bitcoin and they might not publicly be speaking about it, but they industrial projects, you can't really lie when you're you know, putting up massive warehouses and uh, a lot of energy is being used for something in there. Right, right. So to sort of wrap up this using the energy in a sustainable way conversation, how do you think, because okay, you, you've also mentioned nuclear power, what in your opinion is the most sustainable way to power Bitcoin mining? Or maybe this is a question, how can we do it now? Maybe down the line, how would you see it? Yeah, and I would say that when it comes to sustainability, you know, every every asset has their benefits, every generation asset and their disadvantages. So for example, like hydro. Well, hydro is just water, but then people say, oh, it's not sustainable because you have to displace natural environments to make the hydro area basin where the water is going to sit. Mm-hmm. And and okay, well then, okay, is hydro off the table? Then solar. Well, solar panels, they, you know, they were built by coal plants in China. And now is that sustainable? Wind, well, you know, similar things. It's like how much wind is going to be, how much is this going to be generated? Now, wind doesn't have any fuel, but it kills birds. So is it sustainable? Nuclear, well, we have nuclear waste, the nuclear radiation, you know, race from this and 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 you go down the list i think even 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 um geothermal well now the water we're, you know water some areas don't have as much water so now we're wasting water and it's it's going up in the environment so every asset every generation has asset a pushback has a pushback yeah. i would say you know fusion and fission what i know about them i think those are the future for energy but i think that's 50 years out i think today geothermal hydro and even nuclear are all safe ways to generate long-term, large-scale energy. And then also, I'm a big proponent of wind, just because of how cheap it can get, and um, you know, and the minimal impact. And also, it doesn't take up much land compared to solar; it takes up thousands of acres, you know, versus a wind farm, which is going to be still be farmed around it and is much smaller footprint. So I think that does matter when we're choosing the energy sources that we are deploying. Sure. An idea just popped in my head. Um, just remembering when the power grid in Texas shut off a few years ago. What happens to to your data center? What happens to to your facility when that happens? So in that event, they were called, each data center there was called in that operating reserve program as the grid operator started realizing a problem was occurring, which happened when a nuclear power plant that was supposed to turn on got wasn't able to turn on out of a maintenance event. Mm-hmm. And then it cascaded into natural gas plants not being able to turn on because it was too cold. And the regulation has been, um, let's say, lack lacking in Texas when it comes to natural gas and how those plants need to operate. And then wind farms got frozen. So it was just a cascading effect. And that's really what, when these grids fail, they have a lot of resiliency and redundancy in them. But when they fail, it's because not one thing went wrong, you know, five things went wrong in a row. And so Bitcoin miners turned off completely. And when you're turning off your servers, you can put them in sleep mode, just like a laptop, you can put it in sleep mode, or you can turn it off cold turkey. Turning it off cold turkey is a really hard for a Bitcoin miner. So they usually just keep a little bit of power going to it because if a computer gets too cold, you know, it doesn't turn on. And now you have tens of thousands of computers that are too cold and can't turn on because there's no heat. So now you actually need the heat to turn them back on uh, when you have no power at these facilities during the winter. And we've had that issues in New York and in Iowa when we when we have to turn off cold turkey in a very, you know, the power goes out on a physical level due to a malfunction at on the infrastructure itself, which can lead to a lot of work to get everything running again. Would you say that those would be your main challenges when you're operating your data facility or, well, this is probably one of the bigger fears that that happens. 
Yeah, it's definitely one of the hardest things there. And I would say the other thing to add is like the weather. Because Bitcoin mines, you know, we have to deal with snow. Well, we're taking air from the outside in. So we have to turn off our fans. Rain, hard rains are going to affect the servers. You know, we're running computers. Mm -hmm. um, and the snow is so fine. That's why it's the m much harder. So snow is definitely the biggest thing people are worried about is snow getting through your filters and into your device. But then also too much humidity, too much moisture can corrode the device over time. So there's all these different things you have to take in consideration um, when you deploy deploy these facilities and the environment and weather really does make a difference. Right. I see. Just taking a, a little bit of a different turn, where do you think the regulation concerning Bitcoin mining, well, this is probably, you can answer it for the US, where, where do you think it's heading? It's a good question. I think the way I view Bitcoin mining and energy usage is that it's an expression of speech and you're running software. And so in the United States, freedom of expression is very protected. So I don't see any government coming and saying, in the US government saying, you can't mine Bitcoin. But I, I do think that, I don't know if there will be energy regulation, but I think regulation will be in other ways. Like, okay, we're going to tax Bitcoin mining coming to the US when you buy the device. They already did that with the China embargoes. You know, we're going to tax um, Bitcoin miners on their property more than a normal data center. And those things are all, I would say, legal in the realm of the state, but aren't very fair to you know one industry as as just Bitcoin mining. Mm -hmm. Sure, there's um, freedom of speech, but there's always ways <laughs> to sort of circumvent that, right? Can get tricky. It, yeah, it can be. And I mean, the way I say that is because in the past, code by the Supreme Court has been protected as speech if you're just running software. Right. But we've seen with like uh, the OFAC sanctions on the Ethereum address, you know, talking about Web three, that's really a step in the direction of sanctioning software. So I, I don't expect. I don't know how long that'll hold for that argument, but we'll see. Are you experiencing difficulties? Well, a lot of people refer to this as like the choke point to 2.0, right? So the crypto crackdown operation in the US over the last few months, more so increasingly, are you experiencing any difficulties? I mean, is it is it affecting Bitcoin miners at all? Do you see that at all? Yeah. I mean, our banking relationships and the ability for us to transact uh, we we did we were with some of the banks that got closed down, and so mm. we had to go and build new relationships with new banks. And um, thankfully, we've been able to work with a lot of credit unions. And those credit unions in the United States are similar to like co-ops, where they're very small, uh, small asset base, small credit union. And we come in, we provide them services, and it's you know just like the just like the energy group, the wire department knows me by name, and they use me in their training of like, hey, this is how you do wires because I'm always calling in to pay energy bills, you know, three or four times a month at least for just energy bills, and then not alone all the other purchases you make when you build a data center. But we like to go mm -hmm. with the you know the smaller players who are community based for both energy and banking because it does keep away from the, the big national problems that have more pressure and can easily affect industries like ours. Absolutely. Yeah. Local and small is the way to go. And my, my other sort of um, pivot is, so Ethereum is facing a challenge in regard to transaction censorship that the Ethereum node validators can execute. Can we can we draw parallels with Bitcoin here in, in that respect? Yeah. We, so Marathon Capital, before they got a lot of flack for it. They have their own mining pool called the Merit Pool, and they were the first OFAC compliant pool. Mm -hmm. And they weren't including any OFAC blocks in their mining pool or OFAC sanctioned transactions because there is an OFAC list of Bitcoin transactions that Bitcoin addresses that can't get transactions. And so they did that maybe two years ago, but then um, they ended up dropping it because the community you know, got mad at them effectively and didn't like what they were doing. But it is possible still for a Bitcoin miner to let's say, discriminate against which transactions they want to include or not include. And it's their choice because they're building the block themselves and then they publish the block on the network. But that's up to each pool. And as we move in the future, mining pools will become less relevant because there's new decentralized pools out there that allow you to not have to have a central party, but still have the same advantages of a mining pool. It hasn't been pushed to that limit yet, but the technology is there. And if there is sanctions forced upon miners, I would see that uh, becoming more acceptable and more uh, adopted, I guess. Yeah, you said a key word here, decentralization. Um, it was one of my questions because there's a lot of talk and, and critique that Bitcoin miners are more or less centralized into a few big pools. Do you agree with that? Or do you see this differently? Or what's actually going on behind the scenes that maybe people don't know? So what I would say is that the difference between Bitcoin mining centralization and decentralization and proof of stake centralization and decentralization is that when it comes to a Bitcoin miner, I'm choosing mm -hmm. at my hardware level where to point my terahash. 
And for me to swap to a new pool, it takes, you know, let's say to turn 80,000 servers to a new pool, that takes an hour or less. So it's very quick to do it. So I can direct a lot of hash rate from one spot to the other. Now, you could be forced to direct your hash rate to a state-owned pool or a pool that the government says you have to use. Um, and then that's centralized. That's a centralized issue. But Bitcoin is, um, because its players are massive and because there's a mix of ch the Chinese and the US, we see that there is a mix of participants and they're investing in capital all over the world because they're not looking for um, just like just in the United States. They're looking for the cheapest energy worldwide, which takes them to countries that you know, you've know you never even heard of and that are small, like El Salvador, for example, before it came out with this. And so I don't see it as much of an issue because we can quickly change. And we had had a debate about this in maybe 2015 when we had the big block debate. Um, we were talking about Bitcoin.com's pool and there was other pools out there and they were at almost at 50%. But then very quickly within a week, they went back down to 30% because people quickly shifted uh, to their hash rate to other pools. Mm, okay. Well, you know, I'm going to have to ask you before we before I get to the wrap up questions, um, proof of work versus proof of stake <laughs> is a very common question that you get. Has your view changed on this or what's your what's your take on uh, what's your opinion? My opinion is in order to create an asset that has fundamental value, mm -hmm. you need the unit of, of energy to exist. You need energy to be the input of that system for it to be truly decentralized. With proof of stake, it's more of like, you know, the people that own it are going to get more and get interest on it. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just not as I would say f fair from each for each individual to participate in the network and to have the same rights as a nation state, as a company, as an individual. We all compete at the same level. We all have to use energy to extract Bitcoin. We're proof of stake systems. Yes, everyone competes at the same level, but everyone has the same interest. But you know, the more Ethereum you had in the beginning, in the early days, if you were a founder or you know you collected a lot, the more interest you're getting. And now it's you know it's just, it's not as you can look at Ethereum and it's all public. You know, the holders that are larger, there's still a lot of them that are very very large and that are collecting significant amounts of interest versus the small guys. So I think it's it's um, both ways are ways to gain consensus. But I do think that proof of work has is more true to the idea that in order to create value, digital decentralized value, you need to have energy be part of the system. Mm -hmm. What about you? What do you think about it? Well, I mean, I'm with you on that. Um, but then again, it's I mean, proof of stake, social consensus. I mean, um, it's 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 not a straightforward question for me. I think we would probably need another half hour for, for that for that. Um, topic to, to delve in. I mean, advantages and disadvantages. I think as we go along and if with experimenting with proof of stake and, and there's a different kinds of proof ofs now, uh, there's also proof of competencies now, you know, there's, uh, I think the more we do these stepping stones, the more, the more we know. Um, but I, I can't, I can't give like a straightforward answer because there's pluses and minuses for each one. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> you know, I, I know it's kind of like a cop out answer, but you know, it's, um, there's pluses and minuses. And I think, I mean, it's, it's, they're going to coexist. I mean, Bitcoin's not going to go away. So it is what it is. And, um, no need to, no need to add on or change or anything. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's got its, um, it's got its value. It's got its power, but then the proof of stake is a, is a whole different ball game. So it's actually, I don't think it's an easy a question to, to answer. But yeah, sort of copped out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So, JP, I mean, this has been quite a ride. I'm just thinking sort of in terms of big picture um, questions as we wrap this up. What do you consider your your biggest challenges and hurdles besides the exploding machinery when you started that you've endured throughout your mining journey? I mean, this has been like a, a 10, well since you started looking into Bitcoin like 10 years, but like, let's say seven plus years, what has been your, your one of your biggest challenges, would you say? So I would say, I think, you know, my biggest challenge is, is myself, really. It's learning mm. how to manage people, learning the intricacies of, you know, not driving force through the wall to get where you want, but playing the local politics of getting the zoning done. And, you know, I've, it was a lot of these things where until you go and try to change zoning in a, in a local state and, you know, fly in and speak in front of a board that has no idea what Bitcoin is and is all farmers, right. th there's a lot of, 
things you learn about yourself and about the about what it means to to make change in society and to to really build so i would say for me it's you know it's been how do you shift liability in contracts because part of my business has been buying servers and selling them and sometimes those servers don't arrive and now i'm liable for those servers to the customer and so mm-hmm. there's been events where that happens and you have to make people whole and so it's all about understanding you know what does it mean to operate a business what does it mean to have enough margin in a business you know, are you just working because you love it? Or are you working to build um, a lifestyle? Are you working to build um, a lifestyle for your, your community and your my employees? So for me, I've, I've realized that it's important to you know share the reason behind why we use energy, why Bitcoin mining can help the grid to the community and on social media, and then also to my employees and wellness and making sure that they have a, a well-rounded life, bringing in uh, things like breath work for, the, for them and, and giving them access to mental health services and be able to provide that sense of community and have radical, candid conversations where when disagreements can happen, that we can have those. And that's a journey because it's much easier just to say like, oh, I don't want to deal with this problem, especially when you're younger. And oh, I don't want to confront that issue. But there's, oh, I've recently heard a quote that as a human being, you grow when you're either a parent or when you have a business. And for me, I'm not a parent yet, but I've had a, a, this business for almost seven years. And I've grown a lot because of the challenges that it makes you face and the responsibilities you take as a business owner. Well, just doing this research and hearing how you spoke years back. I mean, I know you're on the Dr. Phil show and, and you, you did a bunch of uh, sort of flashy <laughs> flashy talks i've seen your the difference and the way the way you speak i mean that just comes from experience and and getting into it and getting your hands dirty it seems that you actually said a few a few key things in terms of breath work i was just going to say okay yes you're 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 still fairly young and yet you don't have a family so you can actually do all this and being location agnostic as bitcoin mining you know seems seems to to be but just in general, it's it's a lot to take on. And how do you manage with that stress? Like the, what you just said, I mean, from anything going wrong, you know, not getting your equipment or, I don't know, something shutting off or you're basically managing. How, well, how many people do you have now that you actually directly manage? Right now, I would say around 30 people on a, not a day-to-day slash week-to-week basis. Mm-hmm. But these are not like indirect, this is like directly. Then you have like everybody. And no, there's, they're, they're indirectly too. Mm-hmm. So like maybe... Directly, what I'm working on doing now is really putting people in their 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 jobs and understanding, describing them, their roles, mm-hmm. making sure they know how they can ex- succeed and how they can move up in the organization and building it as a structure, a very modular structure. Because, you know, for us, we build a facility, we hire the similar staff and then they fuel up. For, for myself, I'm, you know, I would say managing maybe five to six people directly and then they flow down and manage them. But and I still... It was still a small business. We haven't got to the scale where we have middle level managers per se. It's just, um, you know, the department heads. Um, But for myself and, you know, I think there's a few things that can come about for managing a business and being able to to do it. It's like keeping your nervous system calm, which is breath work, ice baths, you know, doing those regularly, trying daily meditation, really just there's so much noise and pollution and, and just always easy to do so much. And for me as a young guy, I've, and even now it's like, it's hard for me to shut off, but it's very important to be able to, to debrief, to shut down and say, okay, you know, I'm going to be here in the present moment. And then in addition, trusting the process, knowing that it's possible that the, the problems you have will be fulfilled. If you, you know, you focus on what you can do and you build every day and you have a good daily routine, knowing that those problems will eventually be solved and that you'll put in processes in place to solve them consistently. And part of those processes are by putting people in charge and giving them the responsibility and giving them the opportunity to grow into that role versus trying to do everything yourself. So that's what I would say is how I keep it all together. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'm learning about myself every day as well. Well, it sounds like you're on the right path. And just with also with relationship building, like you just said, um, speaking in front of farmers and, and translating the knowledge that they understand what your goal is and what it all means. I mean, it's it's not just to mine Bitcoin, just to like make a buck for people, right? It's it's uh, It's got a grander goal. Well, all of us in, in Web3 are, are striving to as well, to, to achieve as well. What's next in your project pipeline or, or what lies in your roadmap? Um, or just what's the focus for the rest of 2023 and 24? And, um, and it's probably more difficult to talk longer term at this point. But um, what would you say is like your um, your your shorter term goal? So shorter term goal is just, you know, 
building out deployment teams and continuing to deploy facilities, but then optimizing as a team how many hours it takes us to deploy a facility, you know, going from 2,000 hours down to 1,500. That's, you know, on the deployment side, you really need a strong deployment and operation team to keep things running in the background. And then for me personally, the goal of, of bringing the ability for Bitcoin mining to be available to the masses. And so we've worked with someone named Josh Terry before with the Reg CF framework and BitVault, which is a new program that we're launching. And I'll be doing my own Reg CF. And that's going to be that what the Reg CF does is it allows anyone in the world and really in the States to um, raise $5 million a year by selling securities online. And so we're looking to get people into Bitcoin mining mm-hmm. through this Reg CF process. And I'll be launching my own in a few months, but making it so any influencer, anyone with the audience can come in and say, hey, I want to do a Reg CF for Bitcoin mining, for energy, not for an equity play where you know, you're going to take risk and it's going to be in a new startup that doesn't have a market, but into assets with fixed returns. I think, you know, during the hype cycle of COVID and when money was out there a lot, we lost the idea of stable returns. But people really do need stability to be able to feel confident to build their lifestyle and to go out and make these decisions and take these risks of starting their own job and business. So I believe that there's a huge opportunity to build a platform where people can do that. And so that's kind of my goal in the next future, in the next couple of years. And then also maybe getting in the energy business, buying wind farms or buying uh, other energy assets and using those to mine Bitcoin. I'm very excited about those and learning more about the process of those larger transactions. Oh, absolutely. Go for it. I mean, you're, you're, you've become an expert in this. I mean, you're inter- internalizing all of it. So whether or not you dropped out of college or not, <laughs> I mean, this is, you're basically living it. You're, you're basically living this experience. I mean, and I can imagine as an entrepreneur, your, your brain never shuts off, which is, um, like you said, I mean, you definitely have to make sure you have your maneuvers to, um, to settle down and, like you said, be in the moment. Um, well, the ice water are, will do something to you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta be careful um, not to like burn out because uh, the the world is a little insane right now. I think it's uh, it's taking a little turn. So, but that sounds great. That sounds awesome. It's a it's it's a great. Um, these are great goals to have. Well, JP, is is there anything to add that I have not asked that maybe you would like to share or or have our audience take away? The only thing I'll say and end it today with is, you know, Bitcoin and in cryptocurrencies, but I would say specifically Bitcoin, you know, being in it, I've seen, you know, multiple currencies come up and down and there's, you know, there's there's a lot of marketing. But mm-hmm. when it comes to its core, you know, inflation is taxation without representation. And the best way to protect yourself is owning scarce digital assets like Bitcoin. And so do your research, learn more buy some Bitcoin and don't sell it, put it away, make it not easy to get, make it hard to get. And in 10 years, you're going to be looking back and be like, oh, wow, I'm glad I you know, have that Bitcoin because you'll be able to lend against it without selling it. And you might be able to buy that house you wanted, or you might be able to retire and just start slowly living on the Bitcoin that you have. So I think that the masses are going to quickly learn uh, about Bitcoin and the institutions are going to come in and buy a lot of it. The price is going to go crazy and uh, don't get greedy. You know, it's okay to take money off the table. Right. Right. Well, well said. JP, what's the best way to follow your work and contact and of course participate for anyone who wants to? So Instagram at John Paul Barrick, TikTok at JP Barrick. Mm-hmm. And then for uh, Digital Gold Podcast, I haven't posted in a while, but you can follow, listen to some other episodes there. And then a sub stack as well. So my plan is to get more into to writing and producing more content in those longer formats. I did lose my Twitter this week, so you can't follow me there anymore until I get it back. But uh, oh, no. yeah, sadly, it got hacked. And I'm like, oh, I don't know how to get it back. And they said, they said I couldn't. So we'll see what I end up doing. I might just make a new one. Oh, yeah. But yeah, that's how you connect with me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely we'll include all that information in the show notes. I'd like to thank you for talking with me today and taking our audience not only down the crypto mining path, but uh, down more an enlightened, energy efficient mining path that the general media doesn't really bother to discuss in great length. I really enjoyed hearing about your story. Uh, truly, honestly, and the economics of energy pricing and markets. Um, I've definitely learned a, a ton just by researching what, what you've been up to. And your story, your dedication and enthusiasm are all inspiring. So keep it up. And I look forward to hearing more about how you're paving the way for even more energy efficient crypto mining in the years to come. Well, I appreciate it. Dina. It was great chatting as well. And thanks again for the platform. It's an amazing opportunity to come on and speak to the, the fans. Oh, sure. Of course, JP. Thanks a lot and uh, all the best. Cheers. 
Thanks again to our guests and thank you everyone for listening. Thanks also to the Barian Music team for providing their music. You can check them out on barianmusic.com. All of the supporting information is on our website, blockchainrecorded.com. You can listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Podcasts, as well as on YouTube, Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter and YouTube, where we are super grateful for your support. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.